back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and learn firsthand what it is they do and why they do it. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by agronomist and agricultural scientist, Dr. Martin Stauffer. Martin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, James. Now, I wanted to start by asking about organic food. And you know, for me as a consumer, what is organic food and how can I know that I'm actually getting organic food? Yes, that's a good question. And like the organic industry itself is not answering that question properly as well. Because mm. for me as a scientist, like I, and I've seen many organic producers, the organic producer that doesn't apply chemicals and doesn't apply fertilizer and doesn't do this and doesn't do that, he gets organic certification. Mm-hmm. And, and like he gets half the yield of what he would get without, mm. with the chemicals and fertilizers. Yeah. And, that's, and that example is always what the academia uses and the research like CSRO, that they say, oh, we can't feed the world with organics because it's only half the yield. Yeah. And politicians believe that. Mm-hmm. But now we go to the modern organic farmer. And the modern organic farmer, they stimulate the soil biology, they remineralize their soil, they do all the things there to get a healthy soil, and that healthy soil produces uh, as much as the neighbor in normal years, more in dry years, and it's only in the one in five good years that they have a lower yield, but still then the quality of that fruit and veggies and grain is far better. Mm. So it's the way you do organic farming and then to get organic farming, like to go cold turkey from current high input to organic, then you have to stop applying fertilizers and chemicals. And you have a two-year waiting period before you can be certified. Mm. But in that period, you're not allowed to do anything. So then you get to a point that weeds are still growing because there are still fertilizers from the past active. Bugs are still, weeds are still growing. So all the negatives are still there, but you're not allowed to correct it mm. because that's with chemicals. Yeah. So then you get, and then you get a system also that's very low production because you get all the negatives and the soil is not healed. The soil mm. is not healthy. So what I have been talking about the last 20 years is the step-by-step approach from current farming into the organic, towards the organic farming, and which is the field we call biological farming. Mm-hmm. And in biological farming or agroecology, which is a science, like there are professors in the United States that are professors in agroecological science. And in, in that science... Uh, they know they see that you can still use uh, fertilizers and chemicals in small amounts mm-hmm. without impact on the produce if you have a healthy soil. So as soon as you get your thresholds of the soil to such a level that the soil remains crumbly and uh, open, easy infiltration of water, good root systems going down, and the whole system is in balance, then you can do it. But it's small amounts, like 20 kilos of nitrogen in that situation... It's very powerful. It looks like 100 kilos because <laughs> the, the biology is still active then. So the biology can use that small amount mm. of nitrogen, of phosphorus, and of other minerals. But like the, So then many farmers now are stuck in that biological farming. They have gone step by step from the full best management practice, current farming, towards the organic. And then they are at the point like they use half the fertilizers and 80% less chemicals. Mm. Like no fungicide use, no insecticide use, only some herbicide. And they have a very good system, very good produce, good quality, animals, very good production. And they're happy. And some of them could then go continuing and turn organic. But then they say there's not enough incentives to become organic. You increase the risks because if something happens, you're not allowed to rescue. Mm. 
But on the biology, you, there's always a chance that like, if you get suddenly a disease, you can use a fungicide to kill something. Mm. And then you can buffer the fungicide with certain compounds that uh, the biology uh, recovers quicker. It's kind of understandable that a farmer or crop manager might be afraid of going organic because they associate it with having a lower yield. Yeah. You're saying if you can put in the groundwork to look after the, the yeah. ecosystem itself that you're growing in, then that will counter that. Yeah. And you can exactly. expect higher yields. Yeah. And you mentioned healthy soils themselves. Yeah. What, do you, what do you mean healthy soils? What are you talking well, about specifically soils, here? If we, if we go back to that ecosystem, it's very good that you use that word. Like the ecosystem is the whole landscape. And the whole landscape has to be in balance. Mm. And there is no difference in that landscape where we are farming between the nature strips and the paddocks. Like up till now, the science, and still all the science departments at universities, environmental science and agricultural science, in departments in cities, in the cities, in Sydney, Melbourne, at Canberra, all those departments separate for environment and separate for agriculture. Mm. What we do with biological farming, with agroecological farming, is we have the landscape and then we farm within that landscape. Mm. We farm with the ecosystems. Mm. So that, that's why we call it agroecological farming, because it's the agro into the mm. ecosystem. And then in that ecosystem, we have all the biodiversity, all the birds and the bees active. Mm. And there's no separate way for the, like the, pre, uh, the riverbeds and the na- nature tree strips, etc., because it's all part of the system. Yeah. So then we, we stop the separation of agriculture and environmental science. We stop the warfares in our capital cities between those groups of environmentalists <laughs> and agriculturalists. Because we have, for the food, producing food for the world, we can do it all together. Mm-hmm. And I work side by side with environmentalists because I, I'm an environmentalist and myself to minimize the impacts of chemicals and fertilizers on mm. the environment because we need the environment to be strong. Mm. And that's the key in that whole life. And then we come to... And then, of course, in that process from current farming towards organic farming, step by step, you go in that direction and each year you make a profit. Mm. There's no loss. So each year you make a profit and each step the soil improves yeah. and the, the, the healthy soil gets deeper and deeper. Mm. And then you are at the point that you have a good productive system without having to pay anything extra. Mm. Because my recommendation is always you have a budget for a paddock. You don't increase the budget for a paddock to go biological you use like the, the first year you use 20 percent of that budget for biological inputs mm-hmm. so you can use like a compost extract a compost tea some worm juice vermiculture to inoculate the seeds of your grain of mm-hmm. your vegetable seeds and then right from that start of germination and emergence of the seedling it has protection of that biology that comes from that biological fertilizer mm-hmm. so that's the important part of step by step so then you start to create a healthy soil. Mm-hmm. And a healthy soil is a soil that's activated by microbes, activated okay. by soil biology. Yeah. And the indicator for that is worm activity, earthworm activity. Okay. If you don't see earthworms in the soil, then it's not a healthy soil. Mm. And like in, in that step-by-step approach, like with the 20% the first year, 20% for the, of the inputs into the biological way, then farmers suddenly see the first worm on their, in their paddock. Mm. And my rule is like that first year you can see the first worm per spade. Like you do, I do like five digs mm. in, a, in a paddock. And if I have like an average of one worm, that's the start of like, and that's of course in, in the winter time, that's the start of like biological activity. And then when you get to an average of two, three worms, 
then the soil is healthy. Mm-hmm. And then it starts with like the top inch, mm-hmm. which is then active. And then it becomes the, the, the second inch deep. And so each year it goes deeper. Mm-hmm. And then in most grazing properties, like where we have the, the wheat sheep farm, the old wheat sheep farm with grazing sheep and now grazing cattle as well, then standard in the current management is, the result of current management is a compacted layer at 10, 12 centimeter. Mm-hmm. And it's a compacted layer where few roots go through and it's a hard layer. And then farmers say that they have to re-establish a new, resow a new pasture or, or do a deep ripper or aerator or to break that layer. Mm. But like, like what happens in biological farming, if you go to biological farming, inoculate the seed with like that worm juice and a, a compost extract and you then spray a foliar of a biologically active um, fertilizer, a biofertilizer, then in that first year, you can see the, the topsoil starting to be more crumbly. Mm-hmm. And in the second year, that hard layer can already start to be, have big holes in it. Mm-hmm. And that's the beauty of like ecosystems, because you can't just look at one spot. And that's in my farm walks. I always do like one spot here, and I look at the soil, and then a meter away, another dig. Mm-hmm. And when the biology starts to be activated, like after that, in that first year, you can get incredible differences a meter away from each other because the biology finds a place in one spot where they can multiply. <laughs> the other spot is still too difficult. And that's what biology does on planet Earth. It's not a uniform playing field. They use the spots that are easiest to do first. Mm-hmm. And that's the edge effect. Like edge effect is very important in nature. Then nature works on edges. And on those edges of activity, all the energy, solar energy, uh, solar system energy that comes to the soil is activated first Mm. because there's extra energy there. So energy from a bare patch of soil from the neighbor foot, a foot away is that 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 energy is drawn to the growing plant Mm. that then activates the biology in the soil. That biology makes minerals available for the plant. The plant goes bigger (laughs) and then it starts to spread around. Yeah. So it's always difficult if people say, ah, I didn't see anything. Well, how good you look, yeah. is what you, can, what you can see and what you want to see. So to me, like always, like at one spot and then at other spot, I see the variability in that whole biological inoculation, the biological activity in soils, how it comes. And of course, the worse the paddock is, the, the more cropped out and grazed out the paddock is, the slower that process. So it's interesting you mentioned that worms are a great bioindicator of yep. good soils. That makes sense because worms are feeding off soil microorganisms yep. so if you've got yep. a good population of worms you know you've got lots yep. of yeah, microorganisms it's, it's in like the soil worms earthworms don't work in soils that are uh, dead soils yeah like I, and in our like current uh, farm management because worms only are active when microbes are active because mm-hmm. it's the microbes in the gut of the worm that do all the hard work they make <laughs> the worm cast yeah they were they make the worm pool so if there are no active microbes in the soil, mm-hmm. then the worm doesn't emerge from the egg because there's no life for the worm because there's no microbes to help the worm living. We chatted very briefly before about a podcast I did with Gal Winters talking about microbes in our body and how having good microbes in our gut can affect our health and well-being and all that sort of yep. stuff. So there's almost an analogy here yep. on a landscape level yep. that having you know, good baseline microbes in the soil will then have full-on effects for yep. 
plants and farming, right? Yeah, yeah. It's the microbes, like the microbes in our intestinal system and in animals, in any living organism that has a gut, and the microbes in the soil who protect the plant and and feed the plant. They are the most important creatures on planet Earth. The microbes. They mm. are the smallest living organisms on planet Earth, but they are the most important ones because without them, we wouldn't have a life. Mm. And they, there's such a diversity in that. Like in a so, in a good soil, in a healthy soil, there could be like fifty thousand species of mm. microbes. Mm. And the same in our gut. We need all those different species in our gut. And the more fast food we eat, the less microbes are needed to digest things. And if they don't need eat, if they don't need to be working, they're not used. Mm. Then in the next generation, they're not active. Mm-hmm. The same in the soil. Like microbes, we feed the plants. We started to feed the plant like with fertilizers and more fertilizers every time. And then fertilizers are minerals put in a minerals treated in a factory to mm. make be water soluble, mm-hmm. put in a bag and sold on the farm. So the farmer then puts the fertilizer on the paddock or in our home gardens, and then the plant can suck up the water-soluble minerals mm. from the bag. But as they suck up the water-soluble minerals, they don't have an association there with microbes because in nature and in biological farming, in agricultural farming, it's the microbes that feed the plant. It's the microbes that protect the plant. Mm. So that whole process over the last 50 years in the initial uh, industrial revolution when we started with fertilizers, the fertilizers replaced the microbe task for the plant. So the plant was no longer feeding the microbes and the, the microbes were just decimating. So they were not active. Mm. And then when the plant runs out of fertilizer from the bag, then it's not just a, a flick of the switch that the microbes become active because that mm. they, then takes a long while before they are in populations that they can do the job. Mm. So it's that shift from microbe reliance to fertilizer reliance. It's a, it's a heavy one. And that in the natural system, it can't just flick back very easily. Mm. So now with the biological farming, we train the plants to get back. We we train them, we feed the microbes, like with those uh, worm juices and uh, biological fertilizers from from, uh, compost extracts, etc. Compost teas that you can brew from a tea, from a compost. Then those then create an environment in the soil that's, Friendly to microbes. Mm-hmm. So then the, the, the native microbes, there are still spores of na- native microbes in the soil, mm-hmm. they can then wake up right. and start doing the job. So you say and, that's, and that's like in the science world, there are, there are now many studies that have identified, because one step back, it's now so easy to measure uh, microbial populations mm-hmm. with the DNA analysis. Yeah. And like from the, when I started in this thinking in this field like 20 well 20 30 years ago it was all on plates like in a laboratory yeah. on agar plates you were then putting <laughs> the microbes and then they were developing and then you could see which species so now only five percent of what we identified with agar plates only five percent are they 95 percent is what we now discovered with dna analysis yes. so it's an incredible leap of mm. diversity and that's the diversity of the microbes in the soil so then we come back to your point of what the microbes were doing. What was the question again? Well, well you, what, you mentioned very briefly that they're protecting the plants. Yeah. I mean, obviously they're not out there yeah. as little soldiers. Yeah, so, yeah. How are they actually doing that? Yeah. So then, so then we create. Yeah. So we create this environment 
oh yeah, we create this environment that's good for friendly for microbes. So the eggs of my, the, the spores of microbes from the past, the native microbes become activated as well mm -hmm. because the, the environment is uh, friendly. And then science has proven that all those uh, biofertilizers that we apply on the farm mm. are useless because they don't survive for the next year. Mm. So it's useless. Why do you do it? Mm. But I'm saying we apply the biofertilizers with like microbes from compost heaps, etc., and uh, from on the paddock, and that creates an environment mm. that's friendly to the natives to come out of their shell mm -hmm. to start living again. And they are environmentally accustomed to that whole world, mm -hmm. so they can start then feeding the plants again, and they survive and they populate. So it's a method so the in, to bring uh, inoculants from outside on a paddock is a way to create an environment that the natives can start to work again. Okay. So then we get all those different species waking up again, those, like those 50,000 species, mm -hmm. and they start to work in the... For the plant, and they, the plant, they protect the plant, they protect the plant, and they feed the plant. So they're making so, minerals available yeah. in the soil. And and there are now scientific papers, there are two, two groups in the world, that study the, that have proven the communication between the plant and the, the microbes in the soil. Hmm. There's communication between the plant and the mycorrhizal fungi, like the mm -hmm. mycorrhizal fungi is a fungi that's attached to the root, mm -hmm. and now they have proven that they communicate. The plant communicates with the mycorrhiza because the plant needs to, build, needs to make new cells every day as it's mm. growing. The plant ne needs to make new cell walls and the plant knows how to make strong cell walls that are not eaten by insects and not affected by pathogens. So the plant asks for all those building blocks like calcium, zinc and magnesium, boron from the microbe in the soil, the mycorrhiza, that message goes around in the rhizosphere, which is the soil glued around the root. Hmm. And then all the different microbes then make solubilized minerals in that soil to, to, to meet the demand of the plant. Hmm. So those minerals can then go back in the mycorrhiza to the, to the, through the root to the growing plant. Then the plant actively photosynthesizes again, makes carbon, 30% of that carbon goes into the soil to feed those bugs in the soil that gave the plant the mm. minerals. So the, the microbes in the soil can make more minerals available because they are fed by the plant. And that process goes on and on. So that's the symbiosis. And that symbiosis in nature is so powerful that it creates all those plants that are resistant to insects and diseases. Mm. Because the plant knows how to protect. Why does a plant know how to protect itself? Uh, tell me. How if, <laughs> well... If that plant didn't know that, it would not have survived. It would never have made seed. So they're able so to the protect plant, themselves simply by yeah, being more then, healthy and more resilient? Yeah, more resilient. And those plants that are able to do that, they make seeds. Mm -hmm. And those seeds are again resistant to yeah. all that. So that's the whole continuum of the powers of biology. Yeah. That all the weaks drop off, all the strongs keep going because they, they know how to make a resistant seed. So that's the power. And so those microbes, like those 50,000 species... Some of them, so, so some of those species then make the, because they, they produce enzymes that can solubilize minerals in the soil, the hard minerals. Mm -hmm. They can solubilize like the phosphorus that's locked up in the clay. Like we have now like 50, 70 years of phosphorus single super applications on pastures and in crops and all that. And then the agronomist was always saying, ah, oh, like 80, 90% of that phosphorus is locked up after five, six weeks and it's no longer available. So every year you have to apply this single super again. <laughs> 
So all that locked up phosphorus is now solubilized in the biological system for the plant to take up mm. and make grain. And then the science world was saying, oh, that's mining, that's mining. You have to, you have to re- replace the fertilizer. You have to replace with fertilizers all the minerals that you export from the property. I'm saying that's nonsense mm. because the, that phosphorus is only there because it was deposited by the previous managers <laughs> as a fertilizer. So what we do then is we can send a soil sample to like uh, the EAL laboratory, Southern Cross University or APL, APL in Adelaide or uh, SWEPS in Melbourne. And those soil, they have biological soil tests. So they can see how much minerals can be made soluble by biology. And then you can ask for a total test. And then you get like the total zinc, total phosphorus, total copper. So to know how much total minerals are in the soil. Mm-hmm. So then you can see how many years the biology can solubilize those minerals before you have to add some. Yeah. So we use that technology then to say, okay, you have to add uh, like uh, rock phosphate mm-hmm. because the phosphorus is low. This paddock was never fertilized that much in the past, so the phosphorus is low. So, you, so then we can start, or you have to add some zinc or some boron. So then we can direct the mineral availability, the mineral supply to the paddock in ways that we can see from the total and how much biology makes soluble. Mm. So that's all the mineral, all the microbes that make uh, the mineral soluble. Then we have the microbes in that rhizosphere, like the soil glued around the root, that protect the root against root eaters. Like the soil... Well, the, the root the, is the habitat yeah, of this yeah. fungus, so they're going to protect it, obviously. Yeah, yeah. they protect... They, so they protect... So some species protect the root against the pathogens, soil-borne mm-hmm. diseases, etc. Mm. The same with the phylosphere on the leaves. The, every leaf is covered by a layer of beneficial bacteria. Mm-hmm. They prevent the pathogen to puncture a hole in the leaf to infect. Mm-hmm. So it's that whole colonization of the plant as protection. And the plant feeds those microbes to keep them alive and protecting. Mm-hmm. So it's in the interest of the plant to do it, because then the plant gets all the minerals for strong seed that is for their kids Mm. and the microbes do that because if they don't do it they don't have food for their children (laughs) so it's a whole symbiosis of all the goods that are weight are supporting each other and then of course in the microbe world in the soil and on the plants we have the pathogens Mm. like the ones that infect the plant and make the plant sick and the plant dies and in our household on our body we have the germs Mm. that create frighting as and oh we have to kill the germs yeah. as we kill the germs with our sprays in the house and as we kill the pathogens with fungicide sprays on the farms we also kill beneficials mm-hmm. so then we kill beneficials and then the pathogens and the germs they replicate quicker from calamities mm-hmm. than the beneficials do the beneficials are more sensitive so then we get as the beneficials go down every time we spray something, they can't survive easily. They can't recover. So each time they get a bang, and with those bangs, they slowly become extinct. Mm-hmm. And then the pathogens in the soil and the germs in our household get the overpower, and they can do whatever they want. Mm-hmm. So if we balance the pathogens and the germs with all the beneficials, like our skin is covered with a layer of beneficial organisms mm-hmm. that germs can't get to our skin. Mm-hmm. If we kill those, that protective layer in our skin, 
we get holes in it, then we get red rashes, etc. Because the protection is gone, mm. and the, the the negatives get hold of our skin. So that's why, like the liquid soaps that kill ninety nine point nine percent of the germs, don't buy them because they kill our protective layers. All right. So using this human body analogy again, we yep. know that if we use things like these disinfectants or antibiotics, they're yep. going to kill yep. our microorganisms. The good microorganisms we have aren't going to be there to fight off the bad ones. Yep, exactly. We've got the same thing happening in ecosystems. Or yep. If we've got things like pesticides and chemicals killing off soil microorganisms or microorganisms on the surface of the plant, they're not going to be as resistant to insect pests, fungi, diseases, that sort of yep. stuff. Yeah, and, and like the big difference, like 90% of the microbes are beneficial for us humans and in the soil and like mm. in, in general in, on planet Earth, the microbes, 90% are beneficial, 10% are pathogens, germs, and they are like the garbage collectors. They take <laughs> any individual that's not strong enough and they kill that so it can't reproduce. Mm. And like that was very good meeting like uh, an Indian colleague of my age who in the 60s was living on a farm on the east coast in India, so the humid uh, spice country. Mm. And on that property, they had like individual plants and individual branches of trees that mm. were infected with a disease or something. But then they started to introduce the nitrogen fertilizer and suddenly whole fields went bang. <laughs> so right. individually, it was like those individuals that were not protected properly by the beneficials, mm. they were taken out. So it was a plant here and a plant there. Mm. And then they started to feed the plants with nitrogen fertilizer. All the plants became weak mm. and the beneficials were killed. They could no longer protect the plant easily. Mm. And then you had the whole field disappearing. And that became then the doctrine, oh, we have to spray fungicides, we have to spray insecticides, we have to... And that was the whole rigmarole of high-input farming in the third world, in the south. I mean, am I right in thinking that this is particularly a problem in Australia because going back to what we were saying before about needing this ecosystem and needing to farm within an ecosystem, I feel like in Australia we put aside huge tracts of land and clear them and say that's agricultural land and then we fence off other areas and say that's national park and then we have these other areas that's urban areas. So where we have our agricultural land, we don't have natural landscapes. Yeah. I feel like in other countries that might do sort of smaller micro-farming within rainforests or something, yeah. they well, that, might have yeah. a better idea of this than well, we that's do. Why, that's why like... Uh, in, in the current farms, like the Riverina, for instance, the Riverina, when it was cleared, they let the medium-age gum trees stand uh, as tree, uh, shade trees for the animals, for mm. sheep and cattle. And then those trees came to the end of their life mm. in the 70s, 80s, 60s, 70s, 80s. So then you got bare landscapes. Mm -hmm. And like the Riverina had at one point only 0.5% tree cover or something like that. Yeah. So when I started in the, in the 90s on this whole track with leading farmers, I was talking about we have to go back to 10% of the land covered with trees. Mm -hmm. So all the, the ridges and, and like uh, wetlands, we can put trees in there because any paddock that you can't get easily a profit out, mm -hmm. we can just make it as a tree, tree cover area. Yeah. And like some trees, you can still graze underneath. Others can be completely locked up like a wetland. You have wet, wet uh, ponds underneath. And in that way, you get more room for all the birds and the bees to be activated. Mm -hmm. And then those farmers that did that had more production of the 90% left than they had of the 
cropping. Because mm. I also said to those leading farmers, like all the time, because they said, oh, this paddock, my grandfather always had good yields. I said, well, that was your grandfather's time with the, <laughs> the horse and all that stuff. Now, if you lock it up, you spend so much time on there for sowing, etc., that if you concentrate on 90% of your property that's the potentially good, better soils, yeah. you don't waste time on the 10% bad soils. You just plant trees there. Yeah. Then you're always a winner. Mm. And you don't have anxieties of losing money because we did an analysis of the return of bad paddocks on those properties. And like if you don't make, if you make one out of 10 years a return and then three, three years losses and then like six years break even, what kind of farming is that? You don't work for nothing. <laughs> so it's that kind of theory. And then there were leading farmers in each district, in New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, that were doing that. Mm-hmm. And they had great results. And like the whole agroforestry, etc., mm-hmm. to create a new environment on the farm that is then amenable for bird life and you know, all the birds and the bees, pollination. Yeah. So this might seem like a strange question, but if we're talking to farmers about doing things like planting native vegetation around their farms, using biological fertilizers, compost, that sort of stuff, fostering soil microorganisms and the connection between those and plants. How do we sell this to them without it sounding yeah. like hippy-dippy, tree-hugging sort of stuff? Yeah. <laughs> no, no, James, that's a, that's a very good question because it's a real question, a real problem in the world. Hmm. And like those first groups of farmers that I talked with, that was dominated by families that had problems with chemicals, health problems in the family. And then mother would say, we stop chemicals because this and this. Mm. And then they started to use different ways of farming. So there's always a reason then that they can see why, because they have to reason. Like our minds are so logical that we have to find a reason why we have to do it. They yeah, don't, and like personal connection. Yeah, and then personal. Yeah, yeah. And so that that's an important aspect. And then others, like they never say, "Oh, my neighbor does it, so I do it." Because mm. that's the neighbor issue. Like, and that's what the leading farmers, the leading innovators in our country are saying. That like within ten, twenty kilometers, there's no one that does the same thing <laughs> as them because they want to persist. Because what I do is good. What I do is good. Mm. And and then they try to fudge the numbers and. <laughs> and then, and like one, one farmer, a young farmer told me, I, I only had four and a half tons of grain and my neighbor had six ton. And in the pub, he was bragging about he had six ton and I was just uh, a lousy, lazy farmer and all of a sudden. And he said, okay, I have here pen and paper. We calculate the returns, the gross margin. Hmm. So, and he did it for his own crop. He came out with so many dollars per hectare return. And then he said, okay, what's your input? What, what did you do? What did you do? And of course, the four and a half ton had a higher gross margin, higher profit per hectare than the six ton. <laughs> and then if you then imagine, you go to the bank, and you make a loan with the bank manager and all that stuff. Mm. The risk that you take at that six ton per hectare is then great as well. Yeah. And like two years ago, with the, the very good winter we had, the best winter in 40 years, or what was it? Like in Victoria, like the, the Wimmera, the whole West Grain Belt, they were just breaking even in mm. the best year in 40 years. They were breaking even because <laughs> they had put so much input in with fertilizers and yeah. then protecting it with chemicals that the cost was so high that in the end it didn't pay because the price for the grain was not high enough to cover all that. So we are on the wrong track. Mm. But like the official science world and like the departments of Ag, CSRO and the whole academia, 
they're still in the old school, 20th century thinking. Mm. And the 20th century thinking is persisting with fertilizer chemicals as a solution to our food production. And now GMO is the new the newbie. But we are now in the 21st century and we have to need 21st century thinking. And the 23rd century thinking is going back to like our, the, our forebears 100, 150 years ago. And like the people in India, the way in China, the way they were still farming 70 years ago, all interacting with the nat- natural system and getting the best out of that. Yeah, and, now, and now we have so much knowledge of that natural system that we can improve on nature. We can manage far better than nature ever could because nature was always conservative because nature can't operate at 100% because then you get calamities. Mm. Nature operates like at 70, 80%. And after a good year with rainfall, you got all the grass growing in the landscape, but then you don't have the graciers that come to graze all that grass. So you get standing hay. <laughs> and then when it rains again, the standing hay shades the soil surface. So you don't have new, gro- you don't have new growth coming. Mm. So there's less productive capacity. We can manage that now so well, because after a good year, we get all the, the grass growing. Mm. If we don't have enough cattle to graze, we can cut it for hay or silage mm. and store it. Then it rains, the stuff grows again. So we can manage with a far better productivity our current landscape than our forebears ever could because we have mm. all the knowledge. So what we have to do is we have to put that knowledge to work in that agricultural, fa- fa- in the biological farming, in the agroecology. And like the agroecological specialists in the world, like there are academics that are in that world, they are on that field. And like last week was the second symposium in Rome for the Food and Agriculture Organization on agroecology. And the head of FAO now says that agroecology is the future for farming in the world. <laughs> While like here in the country, nobody talks about it. And like in CSRO, nobody wanted to talk about agroecology. Because I wrote, I wrote a, in 2006, I wrote a paper, uh, Soil Fertility Management uh, for the Sustainable Future, or something like that, for the Organic Conference in Sydney. And I wrote systematically all those things that I talk about mm. with references to the literature, references to websites that describe it. And that was accepted by the audience of organic farmers and of biological farmers that were doing it. I got so many compliments that said oh martin this is exactly the road i was i was walking and now i have to i can when i read your paper i can see what i have to look for and Mm. so i was exactly describing the processes that they went through intuitively Mm. by themselves so that paper was almost rejected by by my boss because (laughs) it was no good and i also questioned gmo so i was not allowed to question gmo (laughs) But then a, retire, a, a retired or a scientist that was on the edge of the senior management out, out pushed in directions because she must have done the wrong opinions. Business then politics she, and all that yeah, stuff. <laughs> she then read, I asked her to read my paper and to give comments. And then she gave back very good comments and we modified some things. And, and then I submitted the to my boss and I said well this was approved and she wrote an email to my boss mm. that if we approve this as CSRO then in coming years we will, we will be seen as leading in this whole area here in Australia and da 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 so my boss then allowed me to give that paper mm. and still I, I still get very positive comments of producers that read that <laughs> on how systematic that whole process of biological farming is the way it's described 
but colleagues never ever have never had a colleague discussing that whole issue. Mm. Never, never any question, never any comment. So it's all silenced. I mean, you've done years of research into this stuff, and in your public talks that you do now, you talk, I don't know, almost proudly about uh, claiming that you were kicked out of the CSIRO. Yeah. Were you really kicked out, or what yeah. happened? <laughs> yeah, in, in, in 2006, with the, the, how do you call it, a nice word of evaluation of staff performance? The yearly, uh, yeah, your, your key performance these, indicators and all those sorts of yeah, things. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that, that kind of talk. <laughs> so after that session, I found like all the, sci- the, the scientists and like above me and my bosses and colleagues, they started to do something different with me. I was, I, and I was not allowed to go to the public anymore I, I, because that was not the aim of, of my job. And I was not allowed to talk about uh, biological farming mm. and... Only the one that the talks that were already promised, I was allowed to do. So it was the 2006 organic conference talk in Sydney that I was allowed to go to, and then I had made a land care meeting in Korowa for the Korowa Land Care Group. Mm-hmm. So then I sent a message to the land care coordinator in Korowa. Sorry, this will be the last time I'm allowed as a CSO scientist to give these talks. <laughs> so then she did a letter drop of all the land care groups in northern Victoria and southern New South Wales. Mm. And then that evening, we had 120 people in the hall. They came from <laughs> everywhere to hear me the last time in public. And like at 11.30 in the evening, there were still like 80 people there in the uh-huh. hall, all talking about, because they were all innovators. They were all, like I was not, I was talking to the converted, basically, because mm. all the people, like they came from 200, 300 kilometers away, because he was finally a scientist that was talking the same language as they discovered in their practice. Mm. And I was supporting them, not deriding them. Yeah. So they all came and, and then they signed a petition to let Dr. Martin Stapper, to the CEO of my, my, and my boss, <laughs> to let Dr. Martin Stapper continue this work because it's very important. Mm. And then they never got an answer back. Mm. It's all silenced. But so what is the resistance to these ideas? Is it the I and CSIRO, the industry side of things, or is it simply traditional it's, farming practices? No, it's, the, it's the industry from inputs. Mm. The, fertilizer, the fertilizer and chemical inputs, the sales of those, the profits that the companies like Monsanto and, and the uh, Instec, Pivot, mm. uh, etc., they make a, a new farm. That those, those are the pressures that they just... And then CSIRO signs... Uh, signs a memorandum of understanding with those companies to do studies for them mm. and with ever, with, and I've done like a, a study for a chemical company with a product for Syngenta a, a plant growth promote hormone and I then had to write a memorandum of understanding and sign that and the company says you can only use this chemical for this purpose and then anything that's left over you have to dispose of not let, let the bottle stand and then when you get results, you have to send us the results first. And then you're not allowed to talk about it in public for six weeks. <laughs> and then you are free. Mm. So that you sign that with a member of understanding. So CSRO has done that, like with Monsanto, with the GMO mm. crops as well. And they say, oh, it's all free. No, it's not free. Because then if you break that memorandum of understanding, then you have legal liability because you go against a signed document. Mm. And then you can be prosecuted. So all the scientists follow that memorandum of understanding. So if there are negatives of GMO research, then nobody talks about it 
because the memorandum of understanding says you let us know mm. first and if the company then says you're not allowed to publicize this mm. then they don't do that they don't publicize because they want more money for the next research <laughs> so this experience has obviously played a role in your role that you play now you're actually going out you have your own company yep. biologic ag food yep. and you're going around working with farmers to get this happening yep. doing talks yeah doing talks and uh, and doing field walks and showing in the field as you walk in the field with a spade and like a, a penetrometer to pick, pick poke in the soil to see how, how dense the soil is, how compacted the soil is. And dig up roots, look at roots and look at uh, weeds, what weeds are dominating. All as indicators of where the, health, where the health of the soil is and where mm. it can be going and what you can do to improve it. Yeah, and so how do you find that message taking up? Do you find yourself sort of already talking to the converted a no, lot, or no? It's 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 uh, there's more and more activity, and mm-hmm. especially like the last few years in Western Australia, because like in Western and then you can say, well, why Western Australia? Well, like as we go, we go, we go a step back to the soil. Mm-hmm. When I came in the country thirty six years ago, like at the University of New England Agronomy and Soil Science Department to finish my PhD thesis, right from the word go, it was always, oh, our soils are the oldest soil crust on the surface of planet mm-hmm. Earth, and our soils are so old, our soils are so weathered, our soils, always talking down what our soils can do. <laughs> so if you start with that, and I said, well, I, li- I just lived two years in Syria with a Mediterranean climate, like 350 millimeters of rainfall, mm. and, and I got like five-ton wheat crop after mm. a fellow. All the soil is good and healthy and strong. Oh no, our soils are so old. We can't. And I said, well, then they have the rotation with the legume, eh, the lentils and the, chi- and the chickpeas. Oh no, we can't do that. We can't do that. Faba beans, because our soils are old and our climate, we, mm. we can't do that. And of course, now you look around and we have like chickpeas as a money maker. Well, not this year because India has uh, a tariff on it. But like last year and the year before, chickpeas were booming because there was good price for it. And we got faba beans and lentils, etc. Now in that same farming system. Mm. But when I came like 35 years ago, it was, oh, no, we can't do that, we can't do that. And if you, like the science in Australia, the agricultural science, put their expected achievement so low that you can always <laughs> achieve that and you can never fail because our souls are bad. Mm. And, but then you go to the reports of the early explorers like Cunningham and Charles Third, and you look at their stories and they went with the wagon and the horses over the Great Dividing Range mm-hmm. And everywhere where they went, like the soil was soft, the, the grass was tall. And that is because like all skin of planet Earth is organic carbon. Because mm. plant, everywhere, whenever it rains, plants grow, die, grow, die, grow, die. There's carbon layer forming on the subsoil. Plants are growing. Plants have then roots into the subsoil. Those roots have rhizospheres with microbes that create a neutral zone around that root. Mm-hmm. So even our, in our crappy old soils, there were roots <laughs> going down because the microbes were making a channel, a tunnel mm-hmm. down for the minerals down mm-hmm. deep to bring them up. Then the sheep came. All right. And then like the 100 million sheep by 1900, they were then grazing and in the drought time, like the Federation drought, they grazed every last blade of grass mm-hmm. and then the soil was blowing away in dust and then it started to rain and you had big gullies and it was already happening in the 19th century as well, big gullies. So then we lost topsoil Mm -hmm. 
by water erosion and wind erosion. And then the subsoil came on the surface. Yeah, and the subsoil is crap. And now, like in the pasture systems, like the rotational pasture system, like the, the plant grazing, big mobs in small areas for a short time, mm-hmm. in that environment, you get, and like the plants that you graze, you still have to see a green cover. So it's the, the, the crops are not, the pasture is not grazed below 10 centimeters. Mm-hmm. Then those plants keep on pumping carbon photosynthesizing and pumping carbon in the soil because there's, there's still a green surface. Mm-hmm. So immediately you have, again, linear growth is continuing. So then in the shortest time, you have, again, completely recovered and then you can go in with the next grace. Mm-hmm. And in that world, the roots of all those different species, because then you need different species in the pasture as well because to bring all the different minerals to the surface. And then you get all the roots connecting with the subsoil, going through the subsoil with like the, the, the channel made by microbes. Mm-hmm. And everything is... Hunky dory. <laughs> but as soon as you overgraze, the plants die, and then they have to start growing roots from the top down. And those roots don't grow with microbes with our fertilizer inputs. Mm. So then nothing works. And then because say, oh, we have those crappy soils and we are. But the innovators do it different. The innovators then work with the biological inputs, and they are able, and like with rotational grazing, mm. and they're able to do it. And then there's the big controversy in academia. Because when I first heard about that rotational grazing, etc., 20 years ago, I went to like a leading scientist of my age then in CSRO, who had, when I met him, he had long hair and was a, lect- uh, a tutor in Melbourne University. So I thought he was <laughs> open for new ideas. So I talked to him about it. He said, oh, no, I did that research. And, oh, it's not working. That's, oh, it's not good. And, uh, so immediately he cut that whole field. Mm. And I, I was just convinced that he would like that. It was knocked down. And then, like here at UNE as well, a study like at Chiswick of the comparing current grazing systems, improved grazing systems, and rotational grazing systems, that like the improved grazing system came out as winner, not the rotational grazing. But the rotational grazing was not done the right way. Mm. Because, like, as you know, in agricultural science, you have the methodology... And in a methodology, you have to do the same thing all the time. Mm-hmm. You can't change. You can't change the order of paddocks. You can't change the inputs. Mm. And like you can't change, you can't use like a biological fertilizer as input because each time, oh, one day, one day the nitrogen is 1.8%. The next time it's 2.2%. Oh, no, you can't do a trial with a variable. Yeah. So that's how they talk. And that's how science can't quantify those alternative management systems that use biological fertilizers, because each time the biological fertilizer has a different composition, mm. because it's made like manually by organisms mm. and fermentation and decomposition of grass and manure, etc. I mean, you're obviously you're sort of not skeptical of the way science is done in this sort of field, but you, you, like you just said, there are ways that they're not really embracing. This idea of natural no. variation and yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, is, am I right in thinking that maybe that's a symptom of agricultural science itself? Because, I mean, I talked to lots of ecologists on this podcast, and I am an ecologist, and, and we love variation. Yeah. We're all about it. So do we need to get more ecologists? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, James, that's a very good point. And I know you want self-complementary statements. But, yeah. <laughs> uh, but like, if you now go in the world literature... Like all the supportive scientific papers in the literature 
Afro-ecologists mm-hmm. of this whole new farming. Yeah. There's no agricultural science paper that shows that this is good. Because mm. ecologists, like you say, they, they can use that variation. Yeah. But when I first encountered that in CSRO, then a leading uh, ecologist who was already retiring, he said, oh, you have to go to that guy. He's then the, now the leading ecologist in CSRO. And now I went to him to talk about this whole field. And he started to talk about, uh, he did research like on plate, plate culture in the greenhouse to mm. see with, with seeds emerging at different depths. And, and I thought, what is ecology now working in a glass house with plates? <laughs> this is the new science. Mm. So, yeah, so that didn't help me at all. Yeah. Because it's, the old ecology is good, like the whole landscape ecology. But as soon as ecology then goes to, to measure conditions of why something happens, they go into the reductionist mode of which factor is more important. Is it the depth of the soil or the temperature or the moisture mm. content, which is wrong. Because like what I said before about edge effect, like in nature, you have these edge effects and on an edge, like if you have a, 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 high, a, a ridge in the, in the soil like, or a furrow, then like on one side, on the, the northern side where the sun comes from and, and the warmth, etc., you, you can get more production there than on the other side. Mm. And in a, in a bad soil, that's good because then all the energies go to the plants that grow there. Mm. So you can't get a uniform playing field and you don't have to say what's more important. Is it the, the, the temperature or the moisture content? or the, It's just they will sort it out. Mm. And then the other important thing with ecology is the variation in direction. And like those innovators that then work the land like in curves and like curves on the contour mm. rather than straight lines and windbreaks on the contour in curves rather than straight lines, they are winners. Mm. Because as soon as you make a straight line of a windbreak in a paddock in a landscape, then the wind speed increases on that line. <laughs> and like when because I remember like in the Western District, like with the roly poly, etc., like on those windbreaks, the roly poly rushes along and it keeps on rolling. Mm. But as soon as you get curves in it, you get dead spots and things settle down and mm. and that's nature. So what we have to do with agricultural science is to get all those principles of ecology, of a living landscape, to grow our food. Mm. And as we do that living landscape, we get the good, healthy soil and we get pockets of those soils where we can grow good fruit and veggies and grains and we can feed the world from our current farming land. We don't have to use these increases because all the science talks about, oh, we need to double our production. Mm. Nonsense. Because now we throw 30% of our food away. 30% is not eaten in the Western world. Mm. And also, like the current industrial farming is 30% of the food production of Mm. the world. 30% of the food production is industrial farming with with fertilizer and chemical inputs. And they use 80% of the resources. (laughs) So how can we double production with our current standard of industrial farming? Because we wouldn't have enough resources. If we go back to agroecological farming, then we halve the fertilizer use and reduce the chemical use by like by 80% and we get more natural systems. And then we, we, we stop throwing away food and we stop over-processing food. Mm. Then we get enough food to feed 9 billion people from the current area of arable land. Mm. And then the other negative that the, the science doesn't talk about in public, and they never talk to politicians about that. <laughs> in, in, the world, in our current world, we lose 1% of the arable land by soil degradation and urbanization every year. 1% of good land is lost every year. Mm. Here in our country as well. Maybe in our country even more, because like Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, 
at all on the good soils <laughs> where we had the vegetable gardens before. <laughs> so we, use the good, we lose the good land with soil degradation and urbanization. So if we go to the healthy soils, then we can recuperate all the degradation lands from the past and we can grow good food on it again. And then we can, with, with town planning, etc., with urban farming, we can create pockets in urban zones where we can get good food production on agro, uh, organic ways to get high output, good quality food, and everybody is happy. And like in the United States, like Detroit is one of the examples in the United States where they have whole suburbs that are gone because people don't have work anymore, where they then start to grow uh, community gardens mm. all on, on organic principles because they don't have money to buy, buy inputs. So they do composting and all that stuff and they grow beautiful food. And then kids and people without any prospects of a job, they fall in love with that kind of creating their own food. <laughs> and we get human uh, respect back. We, people mm. get proud again because they can do something. And if we do that in our cities, then we get the whole connection back with where food comes from and everybody gets respect for food that you don't throw it away. And we are, as humans, we can be proud again to be on planet Earth. It's funny, there's almost this cognitive dissonance where people that want to move forward into the future and to develop and improve don't want to consider going back to what was yeah. done in the past yeah. to pre-industrial yeah. practices. But yeah, but James, you, you can like you can remember from what I said before that what we know now about the natural systems, the power of nature, we can apply that power of nature now so effectively in mm. management that it's no longer going back to the past. It's 21st century use of nature power, the power of nature. Mm. And we have never done it in the past because we didn't know the science behind it. But now we know the science behind it and we can observe the science and we can build that as a strong component. The only negative is that then, yeah, we don't buy fertilizer and chemicals anymore. So those companies will go broke. And the Monsantos, <laughs> they can't buy, they can't uh, get more GMOs. Mm. And like, Going back to another country, another continent like Australia with the poor soils and lots of soil degradation and we are the world champion in uh, extinction of uh, native <laughs> animals and plants. <laughs> so we are the world champions. So as we go to biological farming, we can counteract that and we can stabilize that whole system of losing diversity by producing good food. And that's what I was always talking about with like the clean and green image that we have that we are supposed to have it's a myth we are no longer green, clean and green it mm. was something like from the 50s and 60s but over the last 40 years we have used more fertilizers and more herbicides in our no-till systems but we can't quantify that because nobody measures how much we use mm. and that's the big fallacy like in the United States and in Europe they know exactly how much chemicals are used because there's a, there's a register there's a database of the use mm. Here in the country, we don't have that. So everybody can say, oh, we are clean and green. And like last month, February, we had like the love organics happening in Canberra. It was the first organic meeting with all the heavies of the country since 2006, the World Conference in Adelaide. So everybody was proud to be in Canberra to lobby to the government about the whole... Uh, certification organic certification for export and internal use etc and then we had like a barbecue at parliament house mm. and the two parliamentarians one labor one liberal one yeah they were the hosts 
and we had a barbecue and everybody was talking and there, and there were 10 politicians there mm. and then uh, Malcolm came <laughs> as well and Malcolm had a talk and like I could see like the two the Labour and the Liberal member that were like the leaders of the rural constituency mm. in Canberra they were so laughing and making jokes with each other and then Malcolm came and I could see them freezing in their shoes. They became completely <laughs> calm and static and afraid of saying the wrong thing or whatever. <laughs> and then later on, I was talking to the, la- the lady and I said, well, all this clean and green, we have to go organic, we have to go biological, reducing inputs because we are no longer clean and green. And if we are cl- real clean and green and like no GMOs and we reduce fertilizer and chemical use, we increase healthy soils, we can sell all our food to all the wealthy people in the world mm. because we are a green, clean and green island and we don't have... Because now we, we export commodities like all those big ships with grain and this mm. and that. But we go to the high quality food, the grains and all the other produce. Mm. So then we become known in the world as clean and green, real clean and green. We don't need GMOs. We don't need chemicals. And they said, oh, but Maarten, we are clean and green. I said, no, we are not. I said, well, <laughs> I say we are because that's good for our image. We are clean and green. <laughs> that's the parliamentarian speaking. And then they go to a professor and they say, oh, are we clean and green? Oh, yeah, of course, we are clean and green. And so whenever <laughs> they go to science to back up what they say, they're always affirmed, yeah, yeah, we are clean and green. Mm. But like, as you may have seen in the talk on the internet from the second conference, the, the biological farming conference in Lismore, where I had a talk about the, the myth of clean and green and how can, we really real, how can we be real clean and green. There was this CSRO boss who was retired, John Radcliffe, and he did a study for the Association of Engineers and Scientists in Canberra to quantify chemical use in Australia. Mm. And he had cooperation from all the companies, all the chemical companies to supply all the stuff they imported and they manufactured in Australia. Mm. So for two years, he had all the statistics and then he wrote his report. It was released in 2001, I think. And in the foreword, I used that in the foreword that he uses in that report. It says... Uh, Calculating all the chemicals we use in two years, I can see we are not clean and green. We use many chemicals. (laughs) And for our integrity, we have to start using a database. So I urged the government to set up, or the Department of Ag or the Department of something, something, to start a database that we know exactly which chemicals are used, when and where and how, and not a blanket say, oh, our use is good. Because if we can't quantify it, we can't, for our integrity we can fall in a gap. Mm. And that was 2001. Nothing happened. And then in 2010 or 11, an ecologist, a scientist from the United States that came to Australia to be an ecologist in CSRO, she did a study on the environmental issues and she made this statement in a publication. Oh, it's very difficult to see the chemical use in Australia and how it affects the environment because we don't have any numbers on what's used where and when and mm. we really need to know where it is. So that was 10 years after John's report. And still now, 
we don't know how much we are using. <laughs> and if you look at the glyphosate use, the Roundup use, herbicide use, etc., it's skyrocketing. Mm. And some farmers, like in the GMO canola, they use like six liters of Roundup in one year. Mm. All that stuff is happening. And everybody is <laughs> sleeping behind the wheel. They say, we are good, we are good. So it's a myth. Mm. We are not clean and green. And as we would be clean and green, like Tasmania is an island, wants to be clean and green. Mm -hmm. They can go a step further the way they do it now, but at least it's an island. They, they are their own turf. South Australia tries to be an island in the middle of the country, <laughs> but it's very difficult with all the transport and, and mm. seed distribution, how it all goes. But it's, it was a very big loss that we lost that battle against the GMO in New South Wales, Victoria and Western Australia because it doesn't solve anything. Mm. And it's the lobby of the chemical companies, like CropLife is a so-called pharma group that supports GMO. They always give the same talk, and I give that talk now. Oh, that, that, the talk I heard like 30 years ago in CSRO. Oh, we can use GMO to get better nutrient quality, to get drought-tolerant plants, to get uh, acid-tolerant plants, to get uh, better water use efficiency, to get... So all these things were put up that we can do. Mm. The only GMOs that are successful up to date are the ones that you can spray a crop with a herbicide and the crop doesn't die. And... You can have like the BT, the insect resistance, that insects don't eat the crop. Mm. So it's two management factors that farmers can then use to spray a crop or to not spray a crop like with insects and you get results. Mm. But nothing of all those other specials like better quality of the food, water resist, water water, better water tolerance, water use efficiency, mm. nitrogen use efficiency, all those things have no crop yet released, no variety yet released. So it's all wishful thinking, but they get the money all the time to do more R&D and they write scientific papers and they get brownie points. They get promoted because they write scientific papers, but it's all crap for the practice. It's the wrong direction. Mm. So we have to stop doing that. We have to su stop supporting that because it's completely the wrong direction. And now like in the United States, there are analyses with like Roundup use and they made analogies between the steep increase of Roundup since the early 90s and the increase in uh, all the chronic diseases and in uh, the autism mm. and uh, liver diseases and heart diseases and all that stuff. And of course, it's not cause and effect, but because those lines, the increase are similar, it feeds through the food system. Mm -hmm. And like there's one scientist who writes... Oh, it's a group of three scientists that wrote a scientific paper about it. And she analyzed, like, Roundup was released as a chelator. And a chelator is a magnet, a magnet that holds minerals. Mm. So you can, you can, with that compound, it draws all the, the minerals to that compound and they're not floating around in the soil. Mm. Or in the, so, and then they discovered it as a way to make a herbicide. And then in the approval of that herbicide and then they made like the GMO crops all the GMO crops the corn the soybean the cotton with the Roundup Ready gene so that they could spray the Roundup and the plant didn't die but the weeds died and now they discover that like and then they said oh the Roundup doesn't have any impact on human condition <laughs> because that that way 
the round that works in, in the plant is not represented in the body in our body. And the EPA in America approved that and our own like all over the world or in Europe they stopped using approving GMOs, but here we still want to do that. <laughs> but like the 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 that process that the Roundup uses affects microbes. Mm. And microbes are not part of our body, but they, they are in our body. Mm. So all the microbes in our gut are affected by the Roundup. And that's where lots of chronic diseases come from. Mm. And like little kids have all these problems earlier now than we ever had in our generation, and my, me and my generation, you and your generation. So Roundup is creating those problems. And that scientist then goes, for instance, the path of uh, uh, manganese and the path of sulfur and zinc as important catalysts in processes in our body. Like zinc is in 200 processes and manganese is in 300, 400 processes Mm. in our body. And then like with the Roundup, which is a chelator, then those minerals are not freely available. So then she describes processes in our body that the sulfur is not available for that process. So then this happens, that happens, that happens and affects the brain and Mm. and you get the chronic disease. Mm. So it's all step by step approved. Then you, 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 you Google her name on the internet and then you get her statements. And then for every statement she makes, you get like five, six statements of the proponents of GMO completely deriding what she says. Oh, she did that wrong, she did that wrong. <laughs> and they're not specialists in that field necessarily. Any scientist that wants to say something negative about GMO gets like 5,000 bucks from Monsanto, maybe now 10,000 bucks. <laughs> and they can write whatever they want. That's peer review. That's that's valid. It's a joke. The well, whole the whole world is a joke. <laughs> they say that they are serious scientists, but they only use it for their own purpose. Well, I, def- I feel like I shouldn't even ask about GMOs because we could be here for another four hours. <laughs> so we'll have to do another one of these next time you're back in town. But I, I really like the idea you started with that it's not about going backwards. It's about uh, using our 21st century knowledge to harvest the power of nature yep. more efficiently, effectively than we ever could yep. before. Yep. So if there are people out there that are interested in finding out more or might even want to use your, your services as a consultant, uh, your business has a website. Yep. All right, and the company's Biologic Egg Food, right? Biologic Egg Food, sorry. BiologicEggFood.com. All right. Yep. Cool, and you're all around the country Spreading yeah, these talking, messages, yeah. and especially, the especially when people are interested to like landcare groups to organize uh, meetings of groups because it's not individuals that are the easiest way to do it. If you are in groups and you can then come in groups and discuss local practices, then we can get that step faster than individuals mm-hmm. can do because it's a very difficult road for individuals to walk this path. Mm. And like those individuals that I do, like it's basically you have to hold their hand on yeah. that path because every Decision is a, is a new experience that they need affirmation for, that it's the good way to do it. Mm. And in that world, it's so easy to go back to old thinking mm. because like in the times of sowing and harvesting, all those pressure points are there and you don't have time to do something and like to, mo- to measure like yield differences between a split paddock and all mm. that stuff to get affirmation that what you do is good. Mm. So because in the rush, they lose that. Or the yield monitor on, on the header they had as a contractor couldn't download. and So, 
there's there's big big difference big difficulties in con- in getting quantified information about this system. Mm. But then if you look at the, their uh, money returns, then they're all happy. So they keep doing it because they see that they can make more returns with less risk. All right. Well, hopefully more people check out what you do and start trying some of these new techniques. Yeah. Good. But thanks so much for for coming on the podcast. It was great. Yeah. Good, James. Thanks for your interaction and your support of the right. Uh, analysis because no worries I'm yeah, going to go well, home and start planting a veggie garden yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's good for you as an ecologist to see those <laughs> to see those principles coming back it's very powerful because because mm. and that's what like I spoke with the principal of the high school before we started today she was completely in tune with like the the multidisciplinary the interdisciplinary research that we have to train students yeah, to yeah. ask questions because you can only learn from asking questions about other fields and then try to merge those different fields. And, and it was very good that we were at the high school today here in Armadale and teaching the students with that whole concept of asking questions, keep asking questions and merge those questions in your own mind, ask new questions. Because it's, so, it's only that way that we can learn. And I told the students, like, you don't have, like if a teacher says something, you don't have to say, oh, you are lying or whatever. No, you just ask a new question. Hmm. Always ask a question. A question is harmless. A statement about you're stupid, or no, you can't say, you can't say it to a student, to, to a teacher, but anything else is not good. Because if you give answers, questions to a teacher, and the teacher can't answer it, well, then the teacher has to help you to find the answer. <laughs> and I was lucky in my year two, three, and four at primary school, I had three teachers that left me in that space because I had lots of questions then, because mm. I was born with the intuitive. Feel uh, knowledge. I, I knew more than I was allowed to know. I could, <laughs> so I, I asked the teachers all the time about questions, and they supported me with those questions. Mm. So I kept questioning my whole life, and even in a serious row against my bosses, I kept questioning mm. because I want an answer, not just a, show, a, a no no what doesn't work. Company well. line, yeah, yeah. <laughs> company line. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a perfect take home message, and always yeah. be asking questions. Asking questions, exactly. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much. Yeah. Good James. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you guys for listening. Check us out at inscience.com. Make sure to subscribe, leave us a review. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. So how long was the time? That was about an hour and ten. Gee. Yeah. yeah, yeah once I start talking, it's... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> now, Makes but, my job easy. Now, <laughs> yeah, now, now but you, you made the right uh, intermittent points to change the subject to other areas. And, no, it was, no I, I really enjoyed this. No, I enjoyed this, James. Oh, it all this podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au. Mm.